Hello! Today's special bonus episode is a lecture that I was invited to give on campus today. The invitation came from Ben and Judy Cole, who are on the board of the Friends of Miller Library, the generous group of people who help to support our college library here at Washington College. They asked me to give a lecture on Tolkien and food, which I thought was a really fun topic. Even more fun was the luncheon that they threw beforehand, for which Judy Cole convinced our college caterers to make several dishes from a Middle-earth-themed cookbook. They had mushrooms, and stew with potatoes, and even a tasty fish cooked with bacon, which I thought was an interesting Bilbo-meets-Gollum kind of dish. Anyway, the event was a lot of fun. I recorded the talk for you, which was titled Comfort Food, Cookery in the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. We're talking about food today. Um, And Tolkien associates certainly hobbits as a culture uh, with a strong love of food, In the prologue to The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien describes hobbits thus. He says, Their faces were as a rule good-natured rather than beautiful, broad, bright-eyed, red-cheeked, with mouths apt to laughter and to eating and drinking. And laugh they did, and eat, and drink, often and heartily, being fond of simple jests at all times, and of six meals a day when they could get them. The hobbit affinity for large and frequent meals is not an indication of mere indulgence or excess on their part. Um, it's an expression of good cheer and contentment. And this is often misunderstood, especially in sort of the popular culture, which might be less familiar with the actual books themselves, especially in the post-film era. Uh, the, the films did a pretty good job of connecting hobbits with eating a lot, but, but often that's expressed sort of merely in, 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 a, in a coarse kind of gluttony. And actually that connection really predates the, the films as well. In the old... Oh, I say old... I don't know, 20 years old, something like that. Um, uh, Harvard Lampoon uh, parody of The Lord of the Rings called Board of the Rings, um, which I dislike, not because it's a parody. I quite enjoy parodies, and I've read much funnier parodies of Tolkien than that. But it's just because it's, a, it's an insensitive parody. They don't, they don't make jokes about the right things. And one of the things that they get centrally wrong is in this parody, they depict hobbits as merely these really sort of grotesque, uh, uh, fat little things always cramming food down their throats and puking into buckets. And it's just not <laughs> what, what Hobbit culture is about at all. They're just totally missing the point. Again, they're making the joke about the wrong thing, which they often do in that book. Um, but anyway, uh, that, that, that's not what Hobbit culture is about. Um, think about some, some, some of the ways that we see food sort of operating or, 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 or coming into play during the story of the Lord of the Rings. We start... The Lord of the Rings with Bilbo's great, long-anticipated birthday party, his 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 eleventy-first birthday party, um, and you know, at this party, the level of festivity is is measurable by the quantity and quality of the food that they have. In the description, Tolkien says there were three official meals: lunch, tea, and supper. But lunch and tea were marked chiefly by the fact that at those times, all the guests were sitting down and eating together. At other times, there were merely lots of people eating and drinking, continuously continuously from 11s until 6.30. When it's a really big party, you can tell it's a really big party. You can tell it's a great moment of celebration because we're eating even more than usual. We're sort of raising things up to the next level. And you've got Bilbo's, part of Bilbo's party arrangements are for squads of people to come in with wheelbarrows the next morning to take away the people who have remained in like this comatose stupor uh, after stuffing themselves and drinking themselves into oblivion all night. I mean, he actually like prearranged the guys with the wheelbarrows for this for this purpose because he knows hobbits. This is this is this is how this is how you know it's a festivity. Um, 
Similarly, at the very end of the story of the Lord of the Rings, he describes the great year of plenty, uh, 1420 in the, in, in the Shire Reckoning, after the War of the Rings, when the, 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 the Shire is sort of being reestablished and, 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 and blessed by this remarkable year and harvest. And, um, and listen to how he describes this, just to try to illustrate what this year was like. He says, The fruit was so plentiful that young hobbits very nearly bathed in strawberries and cream. And later they sat on lawns under the plum trees and ate until they had made piles of stones like small pyramids or the heaped skulls of a conqueror, and then they moved on. Um, And you think about those images and uh, the the, the particular comparisons that he makes there. He compares the the piles of plum pits that they leave behind them after after they sit under the trees to to the heaped skulls of a conqueror uh, and to small pyramids. Right, so you have on the one hand the pyramids, you know, these monuments of death and embalming, uh, the, the, you know, a pile of, 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 of skulls taken from your enemies, and their little plumpets. I mean, the, the, the very deliberate contrast that he invites there, this is what Hobbit culture is about. It's not about conquest, it's not about enormous monuments, it's about uh, pits and the, the, the size of the pile of, of, of seeds that you stack up after you're just sitting there. Again, presumably the idea of just what they find there on the ground and within reach because of the, the year was so plenteous. Um, now, I should note here that this usage of foodstuffs to illustrate or articulate peace, plenty, comfort, goodwill, and community is not only restricted to solid food. Um, alcoholic drinks also play their part, especially beer, uh, which, uh, of which hobbits are extremely fond. Uh, we see, for instance, when Frodo and his friends, including Sam, uh, are, are leaving Bag End for the last time, they can't find Sam at first. You know, and they're like, calling, like, Sam, it's time to go, it's time to go. And they hear this voice from the basement, coming, sir, right? And he comes up wiping his mouth because he was saying farewell to the beer barrel down in the cellar before they left. And that's... You know, no one thinks anything of that. While they're on that trip, Pippin and Frodo and, 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 and Sam, Pippin is really put out. He and Frodo were debating about the way that they, could, they should take, uh, you know, whether they should take a shortcut across the fields or stick on the road. And Pippin is strongly advocating sticking on the road because that's obviously the better plan. You're going to get lost in everything else. And then he admits that the main reason he wanted to stay on the road was that it goes past the Golden Perch, which has the best beer in the East Farthing. And he had really been looking forward to that, and he's disappointed. Um, you know, when Gandalf is very, very happy with the innkeeper, Barlam and Butterbur, uh, he expresses this by placing a magical blessing upon the quality of the beer in the Prancing Pony, which is apparently, which actually works. Later on, when we meet Barlam again a year later, uh, he mentions that uh, it has been a comfort in a time of trouble, that his beer has, uh, has really been very good over the last year since Gandalf uh, spoke a good word over it. Um, clearly... Not only beer, but high-quality beer uh, is something that's, that's, that's very much uh, uh, valued by, by the hobbits. For Tolkien, though, uh, even uh, the, the, the factors of community and, 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 and generosity and goodwill are even more strongly connected uh, with, with smoking, with pipe smoking. Uh, Tolkien was himself uh, a, a lifelong dedicated pipe smoker um, and... In Tolkien's works, smoking is always a good thing. Again, and always, always associated not just with peace and calm and contentment, but also with, with, with fellowship. Um, and if you'll indulge me in a little sidebar here, 
I, I always feel the need to clarify this because it's one of the things that, one of the small number of things that I feel that Peter Jackson and company were deeply irresponsible about <laughs> in the films. Uh, Tolkien, of course, calls tobacco pipeweed throughout uh, The Lord of the Rings. Now, he calls it this. In The Hobbit, he uses the word tobacco throughout The Hobbit. Um, but when he goes to write The Lord of the Rings, he, he, he stopped calling it tobacco, even though in the prologue to The Lord of the Rings, he uses the actual Latin uh, term, uh, you know, the, 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 the botanical genus of, of tobacco uh, to, to, to describe what it is. But he doesn't use the word tobacco just because t- Tolkien was a linguist and, and loved the history of words. And he disliked the word tobacco. He thought it was an ugly word. And what's more, it was a modern, newfangled word, which in Tolkien's vocabulary means a word that entered the English language later than 1500. Anything later than 1500 is a newfangled, uh, awkward word, which still really doesn't have the edges rubbed off of it. So, so he didn't like that. So he replaced it with pipeweed, which is a, you know, a combination of two much older words, and he was much happier with that. But then, of course, the films get on with the, with the weed thing, and, 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 and they are making fairly transparent jokes about uh, uh, explicitly included in the script, uh, sort of implying that uh, the, the hobbits are smoking, smoking a different type of weed entirely. Um, <laughs> which they're not. There are, it's just tobacco. Uh, but he didn't like the word anyway, so I just wanted to sort of clarify that. I always feel I have to clarify that. I wish I didn't. Uh, but anyway, um, now, the Hobbit affinity for eating uh, is strongly reflected in the book The Hobbit. Uh, the Hobbit is the first book that Tolkien wrote that's, that's written entirely from the Hobbit point of view. He had been working on the legends of the ancient world of, of, of Middle-earth even before he uh, wrote and published The Hobbit. But those are all told, they're, they're all very lofty stories told from the elven perspective, which is very lofty. But The, the Hobbit is the more down-to-earth story of Bilbo the Hobbit himself. And the, the whole attraction to food is very strongly reflected uh, in, his, in his account of his story. The book starts, of course, in the comfortable shire, uh, represented by Bag End, the luxurious hobbit hole, of Bilbo Baggins. The comfort and plenty of Bilbo's world is emphasized through the unexpected tea party that he finds himself the unwilling host of. Uh, and Tolkien is particularly sort of luxurious in his description of the, uh, of, of, of the food that they eat. And in fact, um, the progress of the event is marked by the increasing variety of food that keeps getting brought in. And, and he, he, he goes into detail. Bilbo and Balin, the first of the dwarves to arrive, um, uh, have tea and three cakes each together before the, the second dwarf shows up at the door, who happens to be Dwalin, Balin's brother. Dwalin, when he comes in, asks for beer instead of tea... Uh, but would cheerfully accept some cake, though specify seed cake, if you have any. And Bilbo goes and, of course, he does happen to have some seed cake on hand and goes and fetches it for him. When the other dwarves start to arrive, some called for ale and some for porter and one for coffee and all of them for cakes. So he's still now, this is a... This is still a tea party, which is starting to get a little bit out of control, but it's still not completely outside the bounds of a normal Baggins-ish tea party. But then Thorin and Gandalf and the last of the dwarves arrive, and Bilbo really gets cooking. Gandalf and Thorin ask for red wine. Bifer asks for raspberry jam and apple tart. Bofer for mince pies and cheese. And Bomber for pork pie and salad. And while the others from the other room start calling for more cakes and ale and coffee, Gandalf adds that Bilbo should put on a few eggs and just bring out the cold chicken and pickles. 
What started as an awkward but comparatively polite tea party has become a merry feasting out of Bilbo's well-stocked larders. Um, and again, it's a moment where you see his this dwarven, adventurous world coming and being accommodated uh, by his uh, by his comfortable uh, hobbit hole and larders, but still a little bit uncomfortable for him. Um, when he goes on his journey, a remarkable number of the hardships that Bilbo faces revolve around the lack of food. The very first trouble that they meet on the, role, uh, on the road is with the three trolls who capture them. Um, but it's the loss of the food stores from the, backs of, from the baggage being carried by one of the ponies who bolts off into the river and they lose a whole bunch of their food. This is what prompts them in the first place to desire fire and food and, and, and to seek out uh, the campfire, which turns out to be the trolls in the first place. Um, so it's the, the, their, their desire to supplement their food stores, which gets them into their first trouble. When they escape the, mist, the Misty Mountains, having already escaped from, from the goblins, Bilbo finds himself dreadfully hungry, and he realizes with a shock that he hasn't had a meal since the night before the night before last. Just think of that for a hobbit, Tolkien adds. This is, a hard, this is certainly a, a hardship that hits a hobbit close to home, and Tolkien describes it in charming detail. Bilbo's stomach feels all empty and loose and his legs all wobbly. Now, the primary threat that they face in the forest of Mirkwood, you know, whose dangers they, they have been in terror of long before they enter it, uh, turns out to be starvation. Um, it's hunger that forces them to leave the, 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 the enchanted path uh, that has protected them to that point in search of food, which results in their capture by the spiders. Um, even at the end of the story, once the dragon is dead and Bilbo thinks the adventure should be over, uh, the, you know, the dwarves are there, you know, Thorin and company are in possession of the treasure. The issue of food has still to be settled. It's one of the primary things that is still to be settled. Uh, Thorin, Bilbo, and the dwarves have lots of gold, but they've got nothing to eat other than some cram, which the men of Lake Town make for journeys in the wild. Uh, Tolkien explains, if you want to know what cram is, I can only say that I don't know the recipe. But it is biscuitish, which of course means cracker-like uh, uh, in, 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 in British speak, keeps good indefinitely, is supposed to be sustaining, and is certainly not entertaining, being in fact very uninteresting, except as a chewing exercise. When Thorin refuses to parley with the men and elves who come to the mountain, they tell him that they will leave him to his gold. Eat that, if you will, they say. Roach the raven, who's been helping Thorin and the dwarves, points out to Thorin that winter is coming and asks pointedly, how shall you be fed without the friendship and goodwill of the lands around you? The treasure is likely to be your death. For the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain, peace and food go hand in hand. And in that moment, Thorin is self-destructively turning his back on both. In fact, the development of Bilbo's character is articulated in terms of his changing relationship to food. And this change has a lot to do with the intermittent starvation that he experiences on his journey. At the outset, he considered going without a fourth cake at tea a painful duty. Uh, And he viewed going without bed and breakfast as a genuine hardship. But once he's endured real want, his outlook changes. The once fat and prosperous Mr. Baggins knew now only too well what it was like to be really hungry not merely politely interested in the dainties of a well-filled larder. This new perspective will lead Bilbo in the end not to reject his old, plenteous, and comfortable life, but to appreciate it more and take it less for granted. But even the more active threats to the well-being of Bilbo uh, and his friends during the book are almost all rather uncomfortably food-oriented. Everywhere they go, Bilbo and the dwarves find creatures who try to eat them. 
the trolls not only capture them and threaten to eat them, but they engage in a long and detailed culinary debate about how best to cook the dwarves. Suggestions include mincing them fine and boiling them, squashing them and boiling them, or just roasting them and eating them later. The goblins of the Misty Mountains, who do, in fact, successfully eat their ponies, uh, uh, Gandalf speculates, actually, their ponies get eaten twice, uh, first by the goblins and then by, by Smaug, so they're actually doing better than their ponies are. Um, but anyway, the goblins of the Misty Mountain, uh, they, they actually attempt to roast the dwarves alive, uh, fulfilling the dreams of the trolls. Um, when the dwarves are up the trees and the, uh, and the goblins are, are, are burning the land around them and going to set fire to the trees with the dwarves in them, which the goblins find very funny. And as they're doing this, they're singing gleefully, bake and toast them, fry and roast them, uh, with then subsequent gruesome details, uh, sensory details, what the dwarves will look like, what they will sound like, what they will smell like uh, as, the, as they uh, are roasted alive in the flames. The goblins particularly enjoy this. Um, of course, Gollum, when he meets Bilbo, uh, plans to eat him, uh, going so far as to speculate about whether or not Bilbo is juicy uh, or scrumptiously crunchable, <laughs> in a delightful phrase. Uh, now, when they're rescued by the eagles from the goblins, um, the eagles aren't interested in eating Bilbo and the dwarves, but Bilbo's kind of afraid that they're going to, uh, and not without reason, as it turns out. Uh, one of the eagles admits to Bilbo uh, that he does look rather like a rabbit to him, which is his primary food. So Bilbo's fear is not entirely, not entirely groundless. Once again, Bilbo has another understandable but groundless fear that they're going to be devoured by the horde of bears that surrounds Bjorn's house when they're staying there. Um, And Bjorn teases him for this later on, picking him up and poking his waistcoat most disrespectfully and saying, not eaten up by wargs or goblins or wicked bears yet, I see. Now, the spiders, when they get to Mirkwood also plan to eat them, or at least to suck their blood. And we are again made privy to uh, a cookery debate uh, of a sort, of a spider sort, um, as the spiders decide how long to hang the dwarves in their webs, or if perhaps they should kill them now and hang them dead for a while. Smaug, of course, uh, eats their ponies uh, and comments to Bilbo that, uh, that he is perhaps more familiar with the taste and smell of dwarf than anyone else in the world. He's, he's the, the, the living expert on dwarf cookery. As it turns out, the trolls should have come to him. Um, <laughs> becoming food is by far the most recurrent risk that Bilbo and his friends run into in their journey. And yet, despite this, you'd think this would put him off food, uh, but yet food remains a source of comfort to Bilbo, uh, and it continues to be primarily associated with peace. Uh, when he wakes, when, when he comes to himself after having been knocked, do- knocked out and abandoned in the, in, in the goblin tunnels, and he wakes up and finds himself completely alone in the pitch dark, uh, his first impulse to try to comfort himself uh, is to sit there and he imagines frying eggs and bacon. Uh, in his kitchen at home. It doesn't work. It only makes him miserable to think about uh, the eggs and bacon. But, but that's where he goes. And you can see it still on his mind when he meets Gollum a little bit later and they engage in their riddle contest. Each, uh, yeah, each of them tells four riddles, not counting the what's-in-my-pocket riddle, that, that, that ultimately semi-riddle, uh, that ultimately wins the game. Three out of the four riddles that Bilbo tells are eating riddles. He tells the riddle about teeth and the riddle about eggs. Uh, and his last one is the, the riddle which descri- the, 
no legs, sat on one leg, two legs, sat near on three legs, four legs, got some. The answer of which is a man on a, a, a fish on a little table with a man sitting on a stool eating the fish and the cat gets the bones. That is, he's imagining this quite charming little domestic dinner scene, the man and his cat enjoying their fish together. Um, that's, this is still where Bilbo's mind is. Um, and, of course, the eggs. He's, he's often thinking about eggs. Um, we see he is asked by the eagle what the eagle obviously believes to be a rhetorical question, um, which is, it's a fair morning with little wind. What is finer than flying? Bilbo has an answer to this rhetorical question, which he doesn't give aloud for fear of offending the eagle, but his answer is a warm bath and late breakfast on the lawn afterwards. <laughs> Uh, that's what's finer than flying to Bilbo. Uh, he, still, he still is always going back there. When the dwarves are thinking about gold and protecting their, their, their gold from thieves, Bilbo is off on his own, again, dreaming about eggs and bacon and really wishing they could wrap this up and all go home. At the end of the story, Thorin affirms Bilbo's peaceful, food-loving outlook uh, and confesses his own skewed priorities. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, he admits, it would be a merrier world. The story ends, therefore, not only with this recognition of, uh, not only with this recognition, but with Bilbo's return to that world and with his refreshed appreciation for it. Tea parties might seem like paltry things compared with the splendid feasts that he's been enjoying in foreign parts, but Bilbo doesn't find it so. When he returns home, Bilbo is quite content, and even the sound of the kettle on the hearth was ever more musical than it had been, even in the quiet days before the, the, the unexpected party. Fittingly, the last scene in the book is another tea party at Bilbo's house. Bilbo doesn't outgrow simple, food-oriented hobbit ways. He values them more and continues to do his part to create a merrier world. Hobbits, however, don't have a corner on the food market in Tolkien's works. Uh, Tolkien refers to the culin- Tolkien's references rather to the culinary practices of elves is also very revealing. First of all, uh, elves are almost always connected with bread and wine. Uh, if you go through Tolkien's wor- uh, works, you will very rarely find elves eating anything besides bread and wine. Um, and this clearly, uh, in Tolkien's world, has uh, creates some sort of spiritual and mythical associations with elves from the outset. But the most important thing about elves cooking uh, is their bread, their special bread, um, the whey bread called lembas. Now, lembas is a special bread made for, made for travelers, uh, and it lies only in the gift of elf queens to distribute it, which is almost never done to mortals. Uh, now, lembas is bread, Tolkien says, in the form of very thin cakes made of a meal that was baked a light brown on the outside and inside was the color of cream. Gimli, the dwarf, proclaims that they taste better than the honey cakes of the Bjornings, and that is great praise, for the Bjornings are the best bakers that he knows of. They are more strengthening than any food made by men, for one will keep a traveler on his feet for a a day of long labor. Lembus, however, does more than just keep you on your legs in a wonderful way, as Sam says. It's spiritual nourishment, too. It strengthens the will as well as the body. In fact, uh, Tolkien says that it has a potency which grows when you depend upon it alone, unmingled with other food. All of the members of the fellowship profit from the gift of Lembus uh, to them by Goadriel. Well, except Boromir, because he's dead. But all the ones who survive uh, 
profit very much from the Lembas. And I'm sure Boromir would have, had he lived to eat any. But um, the, the three hunters, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, when they're, when they're running across Rohan on foot in pursuit of the orc host who has captured Merry and Pippin, um, they're eating nothing but Lembas all the way. Um, and this is certain, and this has two consequences for them. One thing that they become aware of as they're running across the fields is that there is some malevolent power in front of them that they, you know, they feel they feel it in front of them and not behind them. They're expecting to be opposed by Sauron, but Sauron, they're running away from Mordor at this time, and they realize that it's the wizard Saruman whose orcs, in fact, are the ones who have stolen Merry and Pippin. That he is trying to suppress their spirits. That he is he is he's trying to, to to keep them down and to keep them back. And Lembus is one of the things that gives them the strength uh, to continue. It also undoubtedly uh, contributes to their quite remarkable, purely athletic achievement in their run across Rohan. When they meet Aemir of the Rohirrim almost all the way across the land um, and tell him where they came from and when they departed, Aemir's response was, you've come on foot? He can't even believe how far they've run in what a short time. Uh, Doubtless. Uh, The Lembus was a a big help there. Sam and Frodo, of course, are eating the Lembus on their trip through Mordor, and it brings them through the worst suffering and deprivation that any of the, the, the fellowship suffers. Perhaps most illuminating, though, is Merry and Pippin. Uh, when they're captured by the orcs. They're just grabbed in the woods and hauled off. And when they finally manage, through a peculiar set of circumstances, to set themselves free at the end, um, it happens that they, they have some Lembus in their pockets, um, Aragorn points out that it's very Hobbit-like, that even though Merry and Pippin were caught completely by surprise, that needless to say, they wouldn't have gone anywhere without food stuffed in their pockets. So fortunately, they had food stuffed in their pockets. And when they, when they, so they, they, they eat the Lembus, and there they are. They've just been, been you know, tormented and, and, and hogtied and dragged across the country. They've been, uh, they've been suffering quite quite pronouncedly for several days, have just freed themselves and the, the corpse of the, of, the, of the orc who is just trying to kill them is sitting right next to them. A battle is starting about 10 yards away and they sit there in the grass uh, and eat their lembus. And as, they, as, they're, as they're eating, the taste brought back to them the memory of fair faces and laughter and wholesome food and quiet days now far away. Mary's comment is, lembus does put heart into you. Um, now notice here the contrast. It's like what Bilbo is always trying to do with the memory of eggs and bacon. Except, unlike that, it works. It, it, the eggs and bacon are a very limited comfort. In fact, if anything, they often kind of remind Bilbo of, of how comparatively miserable his current circumstances are. Lembus is like the real thing uh, and actually accomplishes what Bilbo wishes his memory of eggs and bacon would accomplish. Um, it's almost like elf food. Uh, it's like intensified hobbit food. It fills the same role as food does for the hobbits, but more perfectly, more completely. There are two occasions on which the hobbits interact with elves and eat normal food that is not limbus um, that are particularly instructive. One is in Rivendell, in The Hobbit, when, uh, when, when Bilbo first gets to Rivendell and, and meets the elves. The elves are baking bannocks, that is, oatcakes, at some sort of outdoor stove or something where we're led to understand. Um, and now, 
we're not told anything in detail about these bannocks, but I'm assuming that the oat cakes were particularly good oat cakes. Bilbo does say later on about the food in Rivendell that it is very, very good, which, and Bilbo's kind of a connoisseur, so that, 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 that must say something. Um, yet, even though they're out there, we have these travelers, Bilbo and the dwarves and Gandalf, who have just arrived, and they've been, they've been roughing it for a while, and they're very, they're very weary, and they're hungry, and they come in. The elves invite them not to have some oat cakes, which they're currently baking, um, but instead, they invite them to sing with them uh, and listen to their singing. In fact, they invite them to stay all night with them. Like, hey, no, don't go to bed. Come, come sing with us and listen to our singing. And Bilbo despite his weariness and hunger and despite his quite inveterate uh, hobbit food-oriented perspective, uh, is actually quite tempted to do that. He is much more interested in the singing even than he is in the oatcakes at that time. Um, the second instance that I would point to is when Frodo and Pippin and Sam in their, in their trip across the Shire at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring happened to meet up with this group of elves, this group of high elves in the Shire in the Woody End. Um, and they're taken along with the elves, and, you know, we have basically, you know, a, an elf, you know, they, they, they come to their, like, elf campground, you know, that's like, this is, the elves say, oh, we're roughing it, you know, this is pretty, but the hobbits are, are, are still pretty blown away. The elves call the food that they give them poor fare, and promise that they'll feed them better if they ever come see them in their own homes. Um, though Frodo thinks that their, that elf poor fare is, for hobbits, good enough for a birthday party, which is saying something. Um, it's, the, it's better than the best that the, that the plentiful shire has to offer. Uh, we're told there was bread surpassing the savor of a, white, of a fair white loaf to one who is starving, and fruits sweet as wild berries and richer than the tended fruits of gardens. The hobbits are also given cups filled with a fragrant draft, cool as a clear fountain, golden as a summer afternoon. Uh, and when you see Pippin responding to drinking it in the morning... I'm pretty sure it's alcoholic, too. Uh, that's fairly clear, I think. Or at least has the effect on them that alcohol does, or like the one that alcohol does. This food, the food that they're given by the elves here, would seem to satisfy the deepest, deepest longings of these cheerfully food-obsessed hobbits. I mean, this is the best food that they've ever had. And yet, the food, spectacular as it is, is not what impacts the hobbits about that night. Pippin afterwards recalled little of either food or drink, for his mind was filled with the light upon the elf faces and the sound of voices so various and so beautiful that he felt an awaking dream. Sam comments, Well, sir, if I could grow apples like that, I would call myself a gardener. But it was the singing that went to my heart, if you know what I mean. Indeed, the song and music of the elves seems to contain the joy of which food normally provides hobbits with a fleeting glimpse it is for them a contact with or a partaking of the goodness and delight and beauty of creation. Thank you very much. Now, we still have a little bit of time, so uh, I, I, any questions that anyone has? We can open up to general food-related questions or any specific questions about any of the things that I've been talking about. Jordan? I know you were saving a food question, so yeah. I realize it may just be a movie one, but I'll the wiser slightly. Okay, that's okay. Is that the stuff we used in the books as a phrase? Second breakfast? Yeah, like, hmm. I know late breakfast is used. Bilbo sits down to a second breakfast. It's not discussed as if it were a formal meal. Um, 
it's just he has breakfast and he wants to have it. They have, they have second dinner, too, uh, when they get to Crick Hollow. And they've had an early dinner at the farmhouse of Farmer Maggot, the awesomely named Farmer Maggot, whose house you obviously want to eat dinner at, right? <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, they, they've eaten dinner with Farmer Maggot, but this is a farmhouse dinner. So they eat really early because they go to bed early at the farmhouse. And then they travel and they get to Crick Hollow and Mary is like, oh, you won't want dinner again. And Frodo's like, oh, yeah, we want dinner again. It's been like hours since we last ate dinner. So... Um, <laughs> So I'm not sure it's a formal thing so much as, you know, they have breakfast and lunch and dinner, and sometimes they have it two, three times. You know, that's, that's perfectly cool. So the question is, from a linguistic standpoint, is the second breakfast impossible? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Uh, or at least it's breaking a very, very short fast. Uh, <laughs> if, yeah, yeah, exactly. How would you expect to be on that as a linguist? Well, I think that's why... I, I don't think he really formalizes it in that way because it would be a kind of a silly thing to be formalized, at least a, a silly name to apply to a meal. Um, when Bilbo does it, I mean, we, the, the, the only time I can think of that phrase being used is in chapter, the beginning of chapter 2 of The Hobbit when Bilbo wakes up and finds the dwarves gone, but really they're just down at the inn waiting for him and he hasn't found their little note yet. Um, and he eats breakfast and then he does all the washing up because they've left all, you know, the 13 dwarves have left all their dirty dishes and pots and things. Uh, and then he finally finishes all the cleaning up and is just sitting down to a second breakfast on the lawn. Um, so, yeah, clearly Bilbo is not thinking uh, in very rigorous terms there. Um, but, yeah, but I, 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 do, I, I would say it's, that, that would, would, it would make it unlikely to be a, 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 a rigid category. Well, kind of related. I mean, what's the Hobbit uh, time schedule? Like, I mean, are they really early wakers? No. Yeah, I think yeah. it would be like more the uh, around 9, 10 waking up kind of people. So. Yeah, I mean, Gandalf comments on this uh, in that same moment. When Gandalf comes back and finds Bilbo eating second breakfast, he says, uh, you know, we talked about an early start. Bilbo had mentioned, you know, everybody getting an early start. Of course, he was kind of meaning them, not him. Uh, but anyway, he had mentioned, you know, Gandalf says, what, what was this about an early start? Here I come and I find you eating breakfast or whatever you call it. See, there you are, Jordan. Uh, breakfast or, or whatever you call it at, like, what, it's like half past ten or something like that when he's sitting down to his second breakfast. Um, no, they're, they're not particularly early risers, I don't think. I mean, you would think you'd have to get up pretty early in the morning to start all that eating, but I, I think that they, you know, they, I mean, they do their meals in fairly quick succession. Uh, that ends today's special lecture. Tomorrow I will be posting the next class session, which will cover chapters 3 through 6 of The Fellowship of the Ring. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.